So last week, uh, I shared from the book of Judges, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, about a man named Samson. This week, we're going to continue. We left Samson in a pretty bad place last week, but let me review. Samson was a child of promise. God promised the angel of the Lord came to his mother. Uh, she could not have children and had not ever been able to have children. And the angel of the Lord came and said, you're going to have a child. This is going to be a, a promised child, a special child who will be a Nazarite, a special vow, holy to the Lord for all of his life. He was called by God. He not only had a promise, but, but as he got older, it says the Spirit of God began to stir him like a heartbeat from within that just wouldn't quit beating and he, for him to respond to God. But even with all of that, we see, like us, that Samson chose to compromise. He married a Philistine. <clears throat> he was tricked by the Philistines. They and he killed a bunch of them because, see, God had raised him up to be a deliverer for the Israelites. So, when he went to Timnah and wanted to marry this Philistine woman, which he shouldn't have done, which he wasn't supposed to do, it wasn't God's design. The Philistines were the enemy of the Israelites. They were a godless people. And so, God, not only were his parents not happy with this, but, but God obviously didn't want that to happen. But anyway, after he had killed a bunch of the Philistines, they decided maybe his wife and father-in-law were in on the trickery, and they killed them. They burned them to death. After that, he slept with a prostitute. Then he fell in love with an, another temple prostitute uh, in their worship of their pagan gods. Her name was Delilah. Delilah betrayed him she asked him over and over and over what was the source of his almost superhuman strength. In fact, it was superhuman strength. It was given by God because when the Spirit of God came on him, they could not defeat him. They could not kill him. So, anyway, he, he uh, slept with Delilah. He fell in lust with Delilah. Delilah betrayed him and eventually... She wore him down, and he told her that if his hair, the seven locks, the like dreadlocks of his head were ever shaved because he'd never cut his hair in his whole life, that was part of that Nazarite vow, that if his hair was shaved off, he would lose all his power, all his strength. And that, in fact, was the truth. So she shaved his head. What kind of guy sleeps through your head, your hair, this long, being shaved off? I don't understand how that could happen, but it did. It did. And so when she said, Samson, wake up, the Philistines are here, here's what happened. Let's read it. Let's remind ourselves out of Judges chapter 16 and beginning in verse 18. So when Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, she sent this message to the Philistine leaders. Come one more time. They'd had some false alarms, for he's told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came to her and brought the silver with them. Each of these leaders, we don't know how many there were, offered her 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah was going to get rich off of this because each of them were bringing her that much. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way, she made him helpless 
and his strength left him. Then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are here. When he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Verse 21, the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he was forced to grind grain in the prison. So we left Samson there last time in bondage, not just defeated, not just powerless, but in bondage with his eyes gouged out, forced to work like an oxen or a donkey, pulling the grist mill that ground the grain for the Philistines. Now, we know Samson did a step-by-step downward movement because he went down to Timnah. We talked about that last week. So the first thing I want us to do is do some review, but get more specific and add some insight from the New Testament. The first thing we'll look at is Samson's downward spiral. We need to look at this because we are going to learn from this downward spiral. You see, Samson didn't just wake up one day and say, life's really been good. Today, I think I'll go down to Timnah with the godless Philistines, and I'm going to wreck my life, and I'm going to really mess up everything for the nation of Israel. That's not what happened. Step by step by step. It was gradual. We need to understand this gradual process. Here's why. We want to avoid the heartaches, the headaches, the pain, the misery that Samson experienced. I know every one of us want to avoid that, if at all possible. And the good news is this. It's possible. The Holy Spirit led James in the New Testament to write a description of that gradual slide into sin, the one that plagues every one of us. It describes exactly what Samson did, though it doesn't use his name, and it describes what we do. So this is a description in the book of James of that slippery slope that Samson went down, that slippery slope that every one of us can go down. In James chapter 1, I want us to pick up this passage of Scripture Beginning in verse 13, you follow it in your hard copy Bibles, on your devices. Uh, you can follow it on version. If you're familiar with following our sermon notes, our sermon notes are always in version, And so you can you know, just discover uh, events nearby and you'll get our sermon notes. James chapter 1, if you'll follow this, I would challenge you not only to follow it here, but to read through it this week and study and understand what the Holy Spirit wants each of us to know about this, these truths here. So, beginning of verse 13, James writes, No one is to say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one is tempted, each of us, when we are carried away and enticed by our own lust. 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, 
And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things before we do these stages down that slippery slope of sin. First of all, in verse 13, very clearly, the Holy Spirit guided James to write to us so we would know and never forget it, God does not tempt us. When we're tempted, we can never blame God. We can blame the enemy, Satan, or we can blame our own lust, but we can't blame God. Verse 14 tells us another truth that's a basis for these uh, stages, and that is the culprit is usually, almost always, our own lust, so pay close attention. Often, we'll talk about Satan as if he's following us around personally, tempting us. That is baloney. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere all the time. He is not God. And so Satan doesn't even have the ability, nor all of his demons, the ability to follow you everywhere all the time. He has schemes. He has a world system in place. He has a thought pattern in place that bombards us with temptation to sin in multiple ways. But he's not there following me every moment of the day, nor is he following you. We have enough struggle with our own lust after the world and after the flesh that he doesn't need, almost all of the time, he doesn't need to follow us around personally. There's enough temptation there. And you add in the world system. So, I want us to look in this short passage, these few sentences, that there is a pattern. Six stages, not six, six, there we go. Six stages that are detailed in this short passage in the book of James. And I, I, I didn't come up with these. I'm not that smart. But all the way back in the days when I was a youth pastor, back in the late 1970s, early 1980s, there was a guy named Dawson McAllister writing discipleship material for teenagers. And I remember over and over teaching it. Uh, manual after manual, I had like eight or ten of them lined up. And they were the, like the second Bible for youth ministry teaching. For some reason, only God knows why I chose to do this, I gave them away. I must have found some needy youth pastor and gave them to him. But a couple of years ago, I found myself thinking back to some of the teaching in there that was so relevant, so good. And so I started searching eBay, Amazon, somewhere, because they've long been out of print. And I started looking for and buying. The ones that were $8.95 then seem to have, among youth pastors or somebody, become a collector's item. And I think I gave like $35 or $40 for this book. But it was that important to me. And one of the main things that I paid for that one book was for these six stages out of the book of James. So I'm not sharing anything that I thought up, but it's important. It is good stuff. Let's look at these six stages of that slippery slope, that downward slide. First stage is curiosity. This, this translation, and I chose New American Standard on purpose because it says we are carried away. It's the curiosity stage. It's the, it's the first subtle trick of our own lust that gets us curious about sin. Well, 
you know, I'm over here in this safe area, but I'm going to ease over here and look at it. I'm going to think a little more about it. I'm going to cautious. I just wonder what that's all about. That kind of a thing. Uh, it puts us out of the safe zone into a danger zone. And sin is always available for us to be curious about, isn't it? So that opportunity for curiosity is always there. Stage two, right in this passage of Scripture, enticement. When we're carried away and enticed. So this is a step-by-step. First is just kind of curious. The second one is enticed. That's, this, this is the picture here. When the pleasure of sin is offered to us, you see, not in the safe zone, but over here in this curious zone of, I wonder. Then sin is offered to us as something so wonderful, so satisfying, that anybody would want to pursue that with enthusiasm because it's so satisfying. Our lust offers us the big promise of delight and pleasure. Our lust is lying to us. Stage three, conception. It's right there. Then when lust has conceived, in verse 15, you get the picture. It's using a picture from conception and birth here in the in, in physical, uh, biological kind of uh, illustration. Then when lust has conceived, in other words, when your weakened will, when my weakened will yields to our lust and then begins to follow it, conception of sin has happened. In other words, you've allowed lust to take over your will. It's a, it's a con- you conceded to that. Stage four, then, verse 15 says, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. See, both Satan and our sin nature, our lust, will entice us to be active concerning our involvement in sin. Both Satan, the world system, our own lust, all of that, want to see us pushed to go down the wrong road. They are all working against us, and it is not for our good. See, sin may start in our mind, but it never just stays there. It is not willing to just stay in our mind, but it gives, it's born and gets active. Stage five, sin maturing, the maturing of sin. 15 says, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has run its course, when it has grown up, it's not this little infant anymore, it's full grown. You would think that Satan and our lust would be satisfied with just getting us involved in sin. That is never the case. Our lust desires for sin to continue growing and growing in our lives. The nature of sin, I'm personifying sin, but the nature of sin is it is never satisfied. And what lust and the enemy wants to see happen is a pattern of sin develop in our lives. Stage six. And I think this is where we, where we found Samson when the Philistines came upon him, took him captive, put him in bondage. Sin brings forth death. Sin, when it's run its course, when it's fully matured, brings forth death. Now, 
I believe there's teaching in Scripture that says we, we can, as Christians, as believers, as those who have been born again, who have eternal life, who are justified, who are adopted into the family, never to be kicked out of the family, I believe that Scripture teaches, if you read Scripture closely, that there can come a time and a place where the Lord just says, that's enough, and takes us out of this life. Personally, I believe that's where Samson was, and that's what happened to Samson. That's my personal view of that. But anyway, so we can have that kind of death. I really believe here the Apostle James is not talking about that, though. I think he's talking about the death of our joy, the death of our effectiveness. In fact, once sin forms into a pattern in our lives, there's a moral law that goes into effect, the law of death, the death of everything that is good and holy and wholesome and healthy spiritually and even emotionally. Verse 15, let's read it one more time. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Now, does it mean loss of your salvation? I, I don't believe Samson lost his relationship with God. I think he greatly grieved the Spirit of God. But here's what I believe it does mean, that we'll experience death of the life and the joy that God intended for us to have. We'll be consumed with shame, condemnation, which is not God's will. We'll be in bondage to sin like Samson. We will not understand our worth to God, and we'll struggle constantly with whether God even loves us. We'll have damaged and broken relationships, not just damaged relationships with God. And most of that damage is from our side of the equation. God is constant. God is love. But we lose that close fellowship, and we walk in a pattern. Let me give you that pattern. It's really, I said it's a moral law. It's really a law of sowing, S-O-W-I-N-G, sowing like sowing seed, and reaping. You sow, it grows, it matures, and later you can reap, okay? But here, here's, here's a saying that I have lived by for years. Sow a thought, reap a desire. Sow a desire, reap an action. Sow an action, you will reap a habit. Sow a habit, you'll reap a lifestyle. And if you continue to sow that lifestyle, you will reap a destiny that you never, ever wanted back when you simply sowed a thought. That's how subtle and deceptive our own lust is and the world system that is governed by Satan. So remember, last week in talking about Samson's slippery slope, we said this, I want to remind you, I want to remind me, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will cost you more than you want to pay, and it will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. Now, that's the slippery slope, that downward spiral. We need to be aware of that 
so we can guard against it. And let me quickly, clearly say, we are not helpless at any point in that. The Spirit of God lives in us as His children, and the moment we surrender to Him, He can and will rescue us from that. So let's look at Samson's journey back to God. We need to know this. Otherwise, we'll think, it's hopeless. I'll just give up and slide on down that slippery slope. No. Samson's journey back to God, as well as all through the Old Testament and New Testament, is clear how we can return to God at any point along that downward spiral. So, uh, getting out of sin is a process. Samson got into it in a process. But even, even though the story, even Scripture, makes it sound like Samson's, you know, return to God and all was instantaneous, here's what I suspect. Samson was in that prison for quite some time. He had his eyes gouged out. He was in great pain. He was grinding grain like a common animal hooked to that grain mill, grinding it and grinding it, working like a common animal. I think he had all kinds of time to think, to talk to God, to hear from God, and even to begin making changes. Remember, I left you last week with a, a very short verse, one short sentence. Judges 16, verse 22, it says this. After his head had been shaved and he was captured, put in bondage, grinding grain, it says this. But his hair began to grow back after it had been shaved. You see, God didn't forget Samson. He didn't abandon him. He didn't stop loving him. God was waiting for Samson. He's always waiting for us to return to him. Now, let's discover what Samson did when he returns to God. We read his prayer in Judges 16, beginning at verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord, after, after I think he had had days, weeks, I don't know how long, to consider his situation, to talk with God, to hear from God, to confess to God. Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. He said, remember me, oh, Lord God. He acknowledged that he was the only Lord, that Samson couldn't save himself. He must have the Lord to save him. He acknowledged he wasn't in charge. I think that's repentance. You see, he had been thinking he could handle this. What he was doing here was out loud confessing to the Lord he was doing a 180. And the word repent in the Bible simply means turning away from running life ourselves, turning to the one who can run it correctly and well, and righteously. So, he says, remember me. Then he said, restore me. He knew the relationship was damaged, and he knew it was his fault it was damaged. And then he says, strengthen me. He wanted that closeness where the Spirit of God inhabited him. He had experienced it many times in his life. And then he says, restore me. And then, Use me again. Listen, 
once we know the Lord, if we go down that slippery slope, that downward spiral, and we find ourselves at a place where God is not able to use us, though He loves us as much as ever, where He's not able to use us, when we come to that realization, there is a deep, deep sadness in our hearts. We know what it was like to be used by the Lord. And we find ourselves over here in a place where God can't use us because we've taken ourselves off the active roster. Samson said, use me again. Then he trusted God and he stepped out in faith. Let's pick up the story in Judges 16, verse 29. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, this, this temple. And he leaned his weight against him, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength. Let's put the correct word in there. He bowed with all of God's strength. And the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his entire life in one stroke. Now, I've heard many people tell that story over the years of my life and say things like, what a great ending. Samson won. Israel won. And I say, I don't think so. I don't care how many people he killed in that one event. He died. Israel had 20 years of weak, compulsive, lust-controlled leadership. And although Samson killed a lot of Philistines, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that he led Israel to walk closer to God, to live a victorious life, to become free of their domination by the Philistines and others. But we do have this. God did empower him to pay back the Philistines for some of the evil they had done to Samson and to Israel. Now, with what I can read in Scripture, this is personal view. But I personally believe that Samson's return to God probably still lacked true repentance for all of that lifestyle. That's personal opinion. Scripture doesn't tell us that clearly. But let's apply this to our own personal journey back to God, okay? The New Testament has a passage, a great passage that tells us exactly what to do anywhere we find ourselves on that downward spiral, any of those six stages with where we find ourselves. In 1 John, there's a great passage. 1 John, beginning in verse 8, says this, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is where we started in the middle of the worship music when I shared with you. So we all know we have varying amounts of sin at any time in our lives. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One more time, how much unrighteousness will He cleanse? Absolutely all. He will cleanse it. 
The condition is if we confess. Let me share what that word means. That does not mean you have to come to me and say to me, Pastor Dwayne, I've sinned. And I give you some sort of blessing that releases you from that sin. That's not in Scripture anywhere. Here's what it means. The word confess, you guys know I'm something of a word nerd. The word confess simply means this, say the same thing as. We're saying the same thing about our sin that God says about it. God says to me, Dwayne, that was sin. It will hurt you. It will hurt others. It will damage your closeness to me, and it will not bring glory to my name, my holy name. And so, my assignment is when I realize I'm in sin is to say the very thing God would say about it, and that is, God, this is wrong. This is against you. This will hurt me. This will hurt others. This won't bring glory to your name. I'm saying what you say about it. I need your help to change. So when I say the same thing as God, He promises to forgive and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Why? Because I'm His child. This is not a promise to every person in the world. This promise is this whole book of 1 John is written to New Testament believers, those who had been born again. So we have that promise. Any point in that downward spiral, we can interrupt it by simply confessing our sin. It's that simple, but it's that powerful. We can interrupt that process. One more thing I want you to notice. excuse me, God didn't remove the consequences of Samson's disobedience. And he doesn't usually remove the consequences of our sin either. Here's why I believe. I'm foolish enough, stubborn enough, if I came to him and he removed all the consequences, all the painful consequences of that sin, I'm stubborn enough I'm foolish enough, I would go right back and do the same thing again. And I believe with everything in me, it's God's love that leaves those painful consequences of sin in our lives so that we're constantly reminded of where that sin will take us. And we're constantly reminded because of God's love, the provision He has for us for a better and a different life. Final thing quickly. I want to, for us to all think about the life that could have been in Samson's life and even in our lives. See, Samson could have had a life of prayer instead of presumption. You see, we have two prayers recorded by Samson. You read through that. Neither one of them confess God's great glory, God's great provision, any of that. Just simple, please. Oh, God, help me. We've all done that. He could have had a life of prayer instead of presumption. He could have cared for others instead of, I want what I want. I just want what I want. I don't care about you parents or whoever else, even Israel. He could have led Israel toward God instead of away from God. His example was absolutely away from God when every time he went down to Timnah, he was headed on that downward spiral. And the nation of Israel 
He was called to be their judge, their God-appointed judge. And he led them away from God. He could have had the joy of a fulfilling family relationship, but he went to his parents after he found this, this lady in the Philistines, city of Timnah, and they said, couldn't you find somebody among the God followers? And he said, Dad, I want what I want. She's right for me. Go get her. Damaging his family relationship, creating dysfunction in his family. He could have had a close relationship with God. What a joy-filled relationship it would have been for one who was consecrated to God from before birth to be a Nazarite committed to God for his whole life. He could have had that kind of relationship with God, and he chose to have relationships, illicit relationships instead. He could have led Israel to peace instead of warfare, and they had hatred. He could have led them to know God in a different way, in a holy, pure relationship. He could have cared about God's reputation instead of his own satisfaction. He could have had a life of godly leadership instead of a few moments of glory in battle. He could have been so much more. Remember, when you find yourself anywhere along this downward spiral, there's a way out. Repentance, confession, saying the same thing as God says. Faith in God's ability and His provision. Obedience, action, stepping out in faith, just like 1 John 1, 8 and 9 tells us. Don't live life in such a way that you don't run the race well, because at any point you, dis you discover the Holy Spirit says you're on a downward spiral. It's very easy to interrupt that downward spiral and allow Him to change your direction. He can. He will. He's waiting to do that. You see, I want to run the race well, and then beyond that, different than Samson, I want to finish the race well. And I believe you do too. Would you bow your heads, please?